Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Boris Johnson's future hangs in the balance after further revelations about lockdown-busting parties in Downing Street led the Prime Minister to say sorry for his behaviour. Mr Speaker, I want to apologise. I know that millions of people across this country have made extraordinary sacrifices over the last 18 months. I know the anguish that they have been through, unable to mourn their relatives, unable to live their lives as they want, or to do the things they love. Welcome to Payne's Politics, your central insider guide to what's happening in British politics from the Financial Times, with me, Sebastian Payne. This week, we'll be devoting the whole episode to the Partygate row, which has really blown up in Westminster. After the Prime Minister revealed he personally attended a party, calls for his resignation grew in and outside of the Tory party. So can Boris Johnson survive? Does his fate lie in the hands of a senior civil servant? Will Rishi Sunak walk out of the cabinet? And where does the story go next? We'll be unpacking all the news and drama with a top lineup of guests our political editor George Parker, chief political commentator Robert Shrimsley, and special guest Hannah White, deputy director of the Institute for Government Think Tank. Thank you all for joining. The new political year has begun with a story that has been marching on for months. The row over parties during lockdowns in Downing Street was blown open following revelations of a formal invitation and confirmation that the Prime Minister himself attended at least one of the gatherings. Anger among the general public rose significantly, with two-thirds of voters thinking the Prime Minister should resign. And so did Sir Keir Starmer, who responded to Johnson's apology in the House of Commons on Wednesday with this. His defence that he didn't realise he was at a party. (laughs) It it, is so ridiculous that it's actually offensive to the British public. He's finally been forced to admit what everyone knew, that when the whole country was locked down, he was hosting boozy parties in Downing Street. Is he now going to do the decent thing and resign? George Parker, welcome back. Let's just begin with a quick history of all these parties and where the story began. There was reporting by the Daily Mirror back in December that said there was a Christmas party on December the 18th where people gathered that seemed to break lockdown rules and then since then it's been a drip, drip of revelations of more gatherings, all of whom were against coronavirus restrictions at that time. That's right. And there was a moment this week when Angela Eagle, the Labour MP, said, It might be quicker for Sue Gray, who's investigating all these parties, to look at the days when there weren't parties going on in Downing Street. Such appears to have been the party culture there. And as you say, Seb, the um, the story was first broken by the Daily Mirror in December of 2021, at the end of last year, that these parties, which had taken place a year earlier, sort of Christmas parties in number 10 Downing Street at the time of a lockdown in England. And since then, there's been a succession of stories, some of them 
propagated by uh, Dominic Cummings, the former chief advisor to the prime minister, about the parties that have been going on in Downing Street. At the start of this week, one party, which I thought was a, a real game changer, was disclosed, which was this one, which Boris Johnson found himself apologising for in the House of Commons this week, where an email was sent out by his head of office, someone called Martin Reynolds, inviting 100 people to a garden party in Downing Street and bring your own booze party. I thought that one was bad enough and actually could be a bit of a tipping point in this whole saga. But I wonder whether actually the revelations at the end of the week in the Daily Telegraph that a party took place in April 2021 didn't involve Boris Johnson, but involved his staff organising a party in the basement of Downing Street with music and someone going out to the local cop with a suitcase to bring booze back into the party. And this took place the night before the funeral of Prince Philip, where, of course, there were those memorable images of the Queen in black mourning on her own. I think that powerful image in the Tory Bible, the Daily Telegraph, I think is uh, is one which, again, just feels quite defining in this whole saga. Well, Robert Shrimsley, delight to have you with us as well. And the issue at the heart of this is hypocrisy, which is really the cardinal sin of British politics. Because we think back to those first parties in May 2020, the one that George talked about. What was so extraordinary about that was that there was a press conference at Downing Street that day, the 20th of May 2020. And this is what the then culture secretary, Oliver Dowden, told the British public. You can spend time outdoors and exercise as often as you like. And you can meet one person outside your household in an outdoor public place, provided that you stay two metres apart. So you could meet one person two metres apart. And an hour after he said that, we know that 30 to 40 Downing Street staff gathered in the garden and had a party where there were trestle tables groaning with sausage rolls and Crucially, Boris Johnson and his wife, Carrie Johnson, were present at that party. It, it, it's almost beyond belief this actually happened. It's staggering. I, you can see some of the arguments that people are trying to make. You know, Well, it's his garden and the garden's an extension of Downing Street. But I mean, apart from anything else, the thing that I think people have mentioned occasionally, often is, I mean, Downing Street is full of police officers. I mean, which makes you question, well, what were the police officers in Downing Street doing at all of this time? And the only reason why the police presumably would not act is because they were told it was all right. The idea that the Prime Minister's principal private secretary sends out an invite that says we wanted to do this without the Prime Minister's knowledge that they're going to have a party in his garden, it just beggars belief. And I think the point about hypocrisy, there's often things that flare up which show politicians to be hypocritical. And the public sometimes shrug their shoulders because they sort of have a fairly low opinion of politicians. This is a hypocrisy that absolutely every single person in the country can understand and relate to because most of them, most of us, were obeying the rules, not having parties, only seeing one friend at a time on a walk somewhere. And so they feel it especially deeply. And there's a double whammy in this hypocrisy for the Prime Minister, because you've got all the people, the majority of people in the country, who abided by the rules and you know more or less supported the rules, and they're furious. And on the other side of the argument, you've got the people who were sceptical about lockdown and restrictions, who didn't approve of them, and they're equally furious, because they're saying this proves that you didn't need to do it in the first place. So it's an appalling bind to be in. 
I want to bring in our special guest, Hannah White from the Institute of Government. Thank you very much for joining us. Why do you think this story has had so much purchase? Because it's been bubbling along for six weeks or maybe two months now. But suddenly this week, it's really just blown to the open. And you can see it through the Tories' um, opinion polls. They're now 10 points behind Labour. Public support for Boris Johnson has collapsed. It really has just cut through and dashed any hopes that the Prime Minister could start the new year on a good footing. I think what really changed this week was that the party which we found out about was, by anyone's definition, a party. And the Prime Minister can try to define it as, you know, a work gathering in some technical sense. But anyone in the public looking at it, it really looks like a party. And the other thing that changed was that it's it's now right at the Prime Minister's door. He got in there at PMQs on Wednesday and admitted the fact that no doubt Sue Gray's inquiry, with the civil service inquiry that's going on in into this will put on record that he was there. He was there for 25 minutes. So that won't be a splash and a revelation at the point that the report comes out. It's a simple narrative for the country. The Prime Minister was partying when really terrible things were going on. Everyone knows someone who was having a really, you know, if, if not themselves, was having a really bad experience at the time. And I think that's the thing, that's the battle now for, for Boris Johnson to try to get through. We know, George, that Boris Johnson hates apologising. It's his rule to never explain and to dismiss all these kind of stories. And the fact he was dragged to the House of Commons to make that apology Hannah was talking about shows how serious it was. Now, on the surface of it, it was very contrite and and we were both in the House of Commons chamber and it was a very, very tense atmosphere and the whole of PMQs was very tense itself this week. But when you examine the legal text of it, there's actually not that much responsibility he's taking. And I think it was the barrister Adam Wagner on Twitter and our own David Allen Green have both noted that that could have been written by a lawyer, probably was written by a series of lawyers to make sure the Prime Minister wasn't actually accepting any culpability into wrongdoing. That's right. It was a semi-mea culpa, wasn't it? And so it was very heavily lawyered. He said that implicitly he believed it was a work event. Hmm. Well, as Hannah was saying, it didn't look like a work event to anyone else. He was obviously trying not to incriminate himself at the dispatch box of the House of Commons, because, of course, there's a potential Metropolitan Police investigation, which we might talk about later. But it was really telling, I thought, first of all, that um, Labour didn't accept this was a genuine, wholehearted apology. It was more an apology that he'd been caught out. And the second thing that happened shortly after Prime Minister's question time is that Boris Johnson went into the House of Commons tea room, which is a location that Prime Ministers tend to inhabit mainly when they're in major political difficulty. And he was telling Tory MPs, First of all, I'm really sorry about all this crap I've got got us into, you know, typical Boris Johnson bluster, but then saying, essentially saying that he hadn't done anything wrong. He said that sometimes in life we get the credit for things we don't deserve, and on other occasions we get the blame for things we don't deserve. In other words, as usual, Boris Johnson claiming that he had done nothing wrong, wrong and the blame was wrongly attaching to him. And for a lot of Tory MPs in the tea room who heard him say that, that was quite a shocking moment. I think possibly not the wisest of thing to say, given the events that followed after that. Now, Hannah, I want to look at what's the formal investigation side of this. So when the revelations of parties first came out in December, and it was following the leaked footage of Allegra Stratton, who was then Boris Johnson's press secretary, and she was seen joking in a mock press conference about cheese and wine parties, and she had to resign. And the Prime Minister announced that the Cabinet Secretary, Simon Case, would be investigating this gathering, reports of other gatherings, including one at the Department for Education, I believe. Uh, That lasted for a couple of weeks until it then 
turned out there was a festive gathering, shall we say, in Mr Case's private office, which he walked through, was aware of. And again, like Boris Johnson, the Cabinet Office said he did not attend it and did not break any COVID rules. So he had to accuse himself. Now enter Sue Gray. Who is Sue Gray? Sue Gray, who is now this very famous, uh, one of the most famous civil servants, having moved from being... She trends on Twitter every day now. <laughs> one that you'd never heard of before, but which I think Oliver Letwin had said she was the most powerful woman in British politics at one stage, because she used to run something called the Propriety and Ethics Team in the Cabinet Office, which is the, the team which does these sorts of inquiries, investigations into impropriety in the civil service or involving ministers. Things like previous cases involving cabinet ministers like Damien Green, Priti Patel, Liam Fox. She's now not doing that job. She went off to Northern Ireland for a bit to work in the civil service there and had come back to a job in Michael Gove's department. But with this background experience, she was seen as a good pair of hands to hand the inquiry over to when uh, Simon Case could no longer do it. But what's really happened since that point is that what was a fairly run-of-the-mill inquiry into the actions of civil servants designed to get all the facts on record so that Prime Minister could decide what to do and whether any disciplinary action was required has evolved into something which is actually involving not just ministers but the Prime Minister himself. And Sue Gray is still there being asked to conduct this inquiry into her boss's boss. Now, Sue Gray herself doesn't actually take action on the ministerial code. She's just assembling the facts about what happened. But if there is enough evidence of that, then it will get kicked to our old friend, Lord Christopher Geit, who investigated the Prime Minister's flat refurbishment, and he's the arbiter of independent ministerial standards. How far is she going to go in terms of saying, do you think lockdown rules were broken? Because if she said, for example, this party happened it was a party. The Prime Minister was there. This party broke lockdown rules. You know, in some sects, that could be seen as pretty damning. It could. And I think it's really amusing. There's been some, the, the government spin machine is in overdrive already. And there were reports in the Times this morning that her inquiry is going to completely exonerate the Prime Minister, even though I, I understand that she's still interviewing people and she certainly hasn't written her conclusions yet. So there's a big case of wishful thinking there, I think. But what she puts and how she phrases uh, her judgments will be crucial. And she is actually tasked in her terms of reference to look at what the rules were in place at the time. So inevitably, she's going to, and uh, you know, I imagine she'll be taking legal advice, but she's going to be setting out what the, what the rules were, what the facts are about what happened. It is open to her to express her view on whether the ministerial code was broken. But at the end of the day, the only person who can actually decide that is the Prime Minister himself. He can take advice from Lord Guide, but he is the owner of the ministerial code. Which, Robert, seems a sort of slightly ridiculous situation that there is no actual arbiter here except Boris Johnson himself. And some people have raised eyebrows, um, including the Institute for Government, I think, about this is a very unusual situation because much like Lord Guide in the flat investigation, which we talked about on the podcast, before. That was a civil servant who had the future of the Prime Minister in their hands. Sue Gray is now back in that situation because if she did, if Hannah said, for example, expressed a personal opinion that this had broke lockdown rules, and if she said the Prime Minister broke lockdown rules and, and therefore broke the law, that would be incredibly damning and probably not a healthy thing for our democracy either. Yeah, I mean, it is a difficult situation. I mean, these sort of Normally, these high-ranking civil servants, cabinet secretary or someone else, are called in by the prime minister to adjudicate on one of their close colleagues, a cabinet minister or such like. Boris Johnson has, has yet again broken new ground. I have to say I'm a little bit less hung up about this kind of thing because I think fundamentally a prime minister 
lives or dies by their ability to command a majority in Parliament, and more specifically, normally, their ability to command the support of their own parliamentary party. And so you can do these things. Sue Gray's report will come out and people will pick over it. And the Prime Minister's loyalists will pretty much whatever it says, say, you know, see, she's ticked him off, but it's it's not fatal. We can get past this. We can move on. We can let lots of blood in Downing Street and he can move on together. And his opponents will pick over it and say the exact opposite. But in the end, it's going to, it's not going to be a legalistic decision that determines his future. It's going to be the fundamental smell of this and how it feels to his own MPs when they start hearing from the public. That's what's going to decide Boris Johnson's fate in the end. Nothing else is going to It's going to be whether the Conservative MPs feel that he's done for and that he has become a drag on their prospects and their party. They're going to look at this. They're going to look at the reaction and they're going to make a call based on it. And it's not going to be you know, a sentence of death handed down by a civil servant. And George, one thing that's got people on the internet very hung up is the fact that Met Police are not investigating these allegations, even though they have prosecuted various parties and individuals who broke COVID rules at that time. And the, the police put out a statement on Thursday evening saying that they are cooperating with the Cabinet Office, but essentially they are letting Sue Gray do her report. Once that report is done, if there is enough evidence of criminal law breaking, then they will investigate. But obviously a lot of people are not particularly happy about that. No, not not at all. And it's not just so sort of in the, the far reaches of the internet that people are fulminating about this. Ed Davey, the leader of the Liberal Democrats, is saying that Cressida Dick, the head of the Met, mustn't let Boris Johnson off the hook through a shady establishment stitch-up, which is pretty strong language. But I think a lot of people will be asking exactly that. What on earth is the Metropolitan Police doing, waiting for a civil servant to conduct a review into what prima facie appears to be a potential breach of the COVID rules? When I was just going back through the and press cuttings of what was going on in April 2021, which was the date of um, the party in the basement of Downing Street, the one with the suitcase of booze being brought into number 10 and music playing. Well, at that time, I see newspaper cuttings saying how the police broke up a party in central London with 30 people attending, with music playing and booze being consumed. Everyone at the party was fined, and the organiser faced a fine of £10,000. Now, look, any reasonable person would think, well, hang on a sec, you're prosecuting ordinary people having a party yet this is going on under the noses of a huge phalanx of metropolitan police officers working in downing street who must have heard what was going on and seen what was going on and appear to have turned a blind eye to it so i think there's a genuine question for Cressida dick to answer i think there's also a question about the the relative intelligence gathering capabilities of sue gray versus the metropolitan police she will be very conscious that there's a possibility of an inquiry, presumably, and, and so she will want to make sure that her report is as comprehensive as possible because she doesn't want to get into the same situation that there was with Lord Guite, uh, where he suddenly discovered with the Electoral Commission had managed to access WhatsApp messages from Boris Johnson, which he had not had access to, that the internal process had been proven to be inadequate in relation to a, an external process that had more powers. Sue Gray will be very conscious of that, I think, and, and conscious that if the Metropolitan Police were to investigate they might find things out that she hadn't found and that would discredit her. I do think that a lot of people in this are allowing themselves to be walked down a path that Boris Johnson's supporters want them to be walked down, which is waiting for an inquiry, listening for the legalistic judgments on this, let the facts emerge. The point is, it's actually, it's not about this. It's about the fundamental culture that existed within Downing Street, which the Prime Minister was both party to and permitted to happen. And in the end, you can have these reports, but it's not fundamentally about precise judgments of who knew what and when. It's about what the public sees as the culture 
of hypocrisy within Downing Street. And I think the more we allow ourselves to be led down the narrative of let's wait for Sue Gray and let's see what she says, the more you're actually playing into the, the, the Downing Street defence strategy. Well, indeed, and I've just got this image where we spend the whole of this year from one inquiry into another inquiry and you get so far down the rabbit hole anyone's actually forgotten this fundamental point. And I think when Sue Gay's report does land, it is going to cover the culture, but also individuals too. Now, let's look at the political fallout from this, because following Boris Johnson's apology, it's been quite huge and it really began. And the most prominent figure within the Tory party calling him to go was Douglas Ross, who leads the party in Scotland. And he'd said before the Prime Minister's statement on Wednesday that if he had attended the party in Broken Rules, he'd have to go. And then on Wednesday, he came out, said just that. Crucially for me, he said in hindsight, if he had his time again, he would have done things differently and, and that to me is an acceptance from the Prime Minister uh, that he digged wrong uh, and therefore to be consistent with what I've said before uh, I don't believe his position as Prime Minister and leader of the Conservative Party is tenable and, and he does need to resign. Now that did not go down well with Boris Johnson's supporters as you can imagine one of them Jacob Rees-Mogg who is the leader of the Commons took to Newsnight to in turn attack Douglas Ross. I would actually say that the Secretary of State for Scotland, who is a big figure, is very supportive of the Prime Minister, has made that absolutely clear. Douglas Ross has always been quite a lightweight figure, so I don't think Oof. that um, his... Uh, sorry, his, sorry, hang on. And, and hang on. The been, leader of the Scottish <coughs> Conservatives, an MSP well, and think, an MP is a lightweight I think, figure. I think the Scottish Secretaries are much more substantial and important figure in this. Scottish well, MSPs. Um, well, George, this itself is an extraordinary row, and I can't think of anything like it, of you know the leader of the Scottish Conservative Party who represents 31 MSPs plus six MPs, plus obviously councillors across the saying Boris Johnson should go. It raises the very obvious question of how on earth can the Scottish Conservatives at the next general election say, vote Conservative, oh, by the way, we don't have confidence in the man who is leading the party on a national level? Well, indeed, or fight a general election where the SNP will put on every leaflet vote for a party whose leader the Prime Minister or Jacob Rees-Mogg thinks is a lightweight. I mean, it's, I mean it's, it is extraordinary. I don't think it's a very intelligent strategy for Boris Johnson loyalists, not that there are all that many of them, to play the man or the woman rather than the ball in this case, because it's not just going to be Douglas Ross, but it's going to be an increasing number of Conservative MPs south of the border who are calling for Boris Johnson to resign. But yeah, I mean, the idea that you attack the leader of your party in Scotland when it's obviously the future of the unions in such a sensitive position, sort of driving the possibility that the Scottish Conservative Party will one day break away from the main UK-wide Conservative Party when it's supposed to be the Conservative and Unionist Party. I mean, it's a very dangerous game I think Jacob Rees-Mogg is playing. And uh, frankly, I think anyone who heard it would have thought it sounded rather desperate. And there's also been five Tory MPs, by the time we're recording this on Friday morning, have called for Boris Johnson to go. I think the most prominent is Caroline Noakes, who's the former immigration minister. This is what she told ITV. Now, regretfully, he looks like a liability. And I think he either goes now or he goes in three years' time at a general election. And it's up to the party to decide which way round that's going to be. I know my <coughs> thoughts are is that he's damaging us now. 
Well, Robert, it's still quite a small number of Tory MPs. And of course, this leads us to the great question of the letters of no confidence. So to have a leadership challenge to a Tory party leader, 15% of the parliamentary party has to write letters to Sir Graham Brady, who's a grandee who runs this thing called the 1922 Committee, a sort of trade union for Tory MPs. And we spend our weeks trying to figure out how many of these letters are in. And to be honest, nobody except Sir Graham knows. And he keeps his counsel very close here. But we know that five MPs have said he should go. Others have put letters in. So I think it's fair to say there's probably at least a dozen. It could be a lot more, but it's probably not less than that. Where do you see the mood of the Conservative Parliamentary Party at the moment? I mean, there were these revelations in the Telegraph which might have shifted the dial a bit. My sense was by Thursday night that the momentum for an immediate assault on Boris Johnson had slowed and that actually people were going to wait till Sue Gray report they were going to see how this how this played out over the next few days next couple of weeks they don't they don't have an appetite to bring him down just yet and they're also not sure more importantly who they'd get if they did and whether they'd be any better one of the problems with bringing him down if you, is that there isn't a clear favorite to succeed there are names that are sort of higher up the pecking order but no one can be guaranteed who's going to take over and they won't be sure that they'd get their candidate and that they'd be better at holding this rather broad electoral coalition that Boris Johnson's managed to have together. So there's a lot of reasons for Tory MPs to opt for inertia, say, let's just wait and see. Let's see how the local elections turn out. You know, the Conservatives are well used to sacrificing hundreds of councillors in local elections um, and then coming back in a general. Let's see if we can get over this bump and see if the Parliament will forgive him in a few weeks. The deepest rooted instinct of the Conservative MPs is, to, we, we've got a bit of time, let's see how this plays out. So I think it's going to take a bit more to give them, to create the momentum to push him out faster than that. But fundamentally, Boris Johnson has been going down in the opinion polls since June very, very steadily, regardless of these current rows. He's been falling in popularity. He has become, or is very close to becoming, a serious drag on his own party's prospects. And that's the thing that in the end is going to make Conservative MPs act or not act. If they become convinced he's going to cost them the election, he's going to cost them their seat, then they will move. But I think they feel they've got a bit of time to make that decision and they don't want to be rushed into it. Well, Hannah, one of the things that I think is sort of saving Boris Johnson at the moment is there is no obvious alternative. And there's actually not a huge amount of appetite for a leadership contest now because the whole thing would take about six weeks at best once you do the parliamentary round and it goes out to the general public. Getting those letters is quite a high bar, but I think once you get to that vote, I think the Prime Minister is in quite a lot of trouble because his popularity rests so much on his national standing and on the fact it will seem to be liked a lot by the general public. And once that's gone, MPs will fall away quite quickly. But it would just be a very messy situation that obviously itself just looks like the whole government's in turmoil. Certainly, I agree that with the numbers where they are, we're not looking at the immediate prospect of a, of a challenge. Even once the, the technical 53 letters are received, there's then a vote of confidence. And, you know, Theresa May won hers. And, and the rule then is that you can't have another pop at the Prime Minister for, for a year after that. So, there will be a sense that, you know, if you want to take a hit at the, at the Prime Minister, then you'd better not miss. I do think, though, I mean, it, it's not necessarily the case that if there isn't an obvious uh, alternative candidate, that's a reason not to go for it. People will all have the, the person that they want to see in that role. Often it's not the obvious candidate who comes through in, in Conservative leadership elections in any case. If there's enough of a sense that a change is needed, any alternative may, may look at that point <laughs> like a, an advantage over Boris Johnson. 
Now, the other avenue, George, that could prove problematic is the cabinet, because obviously we think back to the days of Margaret Thatcher and also Theresa May as well, because that's what ultimately did for her was when cabinet ministers came to her and essentially said, you're done, you need to go, you haven't got a Brexit plan. And the same thing could happen with Boris Johnson. And we've been spending a lot of time watching the Chancellor, Rishi Sunak, because after PMQs on Wednesday, cabinet ministers started tweeting their support for the prime minister. And as Robert said, you kept using the same formulation, let's wait for Sue. Gray. Rishi Sunak did not tweet until after 8pm at night, which was a full eight hours after Prime Minister's questions and I think a good hour after he'd met with Boris Johnson himself. And number 10 are very suspicious that he was thinking of either saying something else or potentially even resigning. What's your read on that and how much should Boris Johnson be worried about what's going on next door to him? Well, the official line was that uh, Rishi Sunak, Sunak had a very busy diary on Wednesday. He'd managed to find a an appointment in Ilfracombe in North Devon, 200 miles away, so he couldn't be seen on the front bench of the House of Commons alongside Boris Johnson. And then, as you say, so it wasn't until 8 o'clock he actually tweeted a message of not exactly support, but saying the Prime Minister had done the right thing in apologising uh, and wait until Sue Gray's report. Look, I, mean, I think number 10 are right to be wary of what Rishi Sunak's up to. Equally, this is actually quite a dangerous moment for Rishi Sunak himself. And I'm thinking back in particular to the late 2000s, when David Miliband was agitating to succeed Gordon Brown as Labour Prime Minister. He was Foreign Secretary at the time. And there were little moments of half-disguised disloyalty, a bit like Rishi Sunak's delayed tweets on Wednesday. And in the end, David Miliband didn't have the nerve to strike. And there's a danger if you let it be known that you're agitating or being a bit disloyal, and then you don't do anything about it, you start to look weak and you damage yourself. And I think Rishi Sunak's wise enough to realise that's a danger. So on the Thursday, his team were very clear that he was standing behind the Prime Minister. There was no disloyalty. He wasn't thinking of resigning and triggering a sort of cabinet's coup against Boris Johnson. But plainly, Rishi Sunak is unhappy with what's going on. Plainly, he wants the job. And this is all about tactics, really. The danger of resigning and trying to trigger a sort of move against the Prime Minister is that you don't have people behind you. And I think that's a problem for all of the rivals to Boris Johnson at the moment, one of the things that helps Boris Johnson, is there's no fully-fledged campaign yet up and running for any of the potential leaders. Everything's come rather quickly. You know, this disclosure of the party in May 2020 only happened earlier this week. Nobody seems quite ready for a change of leadership. Psychologically, they're not ready, and organisationally, they're not ready. That gives Boris Johnson a bit of breathing space, but my sense is the breathing space is closing down more and more with every disclosure that comes along. Right, well, let's wrap this up by looking at where we all think this is going to go next. So Hannah, obviously, as you said, Sue Gray is investigating. And literally as we're recording this, the cabinet office have just confirmed that she is going to investigate the party in April 2021. So her inquiry's just got even bigger by the moment. That report is expected the soonest next week, but could go on longer. And I think there's a great sense from those close to Sue Gray, she is not going to rush this, even though there is a political impetus from Downing Street to try and get this thing over on as soon as possible. So that comes out. Will it be published in full? Will we see the whole thing? And do we expect Boris Johnson more then go to the House of Commons? Is there a sense of a Lord Guyton to vest in the ministerial code? How do you see that element of it going next? I think it's far from clear that the full thing will be published. There are precedents of an investigation like this and where only a summary of the report was made public. And I think if you look closely at the remarks of cabinet 
ministers and people who've gone out to bat for Boris Johnson on this, they have only said the findings will be published. So I, I don't think we necessarily can expect to see the full thing, and particularly because it might refer to disciplinary consequences for civil servants. They may say that that's a, those are HR uh, issues and therefore the report shouldn't be published. Yes, she could suggest that uh, Boris Johnson should refer himself to Lord Guite for his view on this. So that could extend things with another period of investigation. But I think there will be a really crucial moment when her report comes out or the findings of her report come out, I should say, uh, because that is when a lot of Conservative MPs will have to decide whether to keep sitting on the fence or not. And Robert, the best case scenario from Boris Johnson's perspective, as we wrote about in the FT on Friday, is that essentially this report comes out, the net is cast very widely, particularly with this reference to culture, to civil service management. And you can imagine there would be um, many senior civil servants who would get shuffled on in downstream, including Martin Reynolds, who sent that now infamous email about the May 2020 party. Boris Johnson has been telling his allies that he wants to do a clear out of Downing Street with a new political team, new officials, then tries to do a domestic reset and essentially announce that all the COVID rules are going, which is due to be reviewed on the 26th of January, and then focus on Michael Gove's levelling of white paper. And that, at least, will get him through to the local elections in May. I guess that is, from the Prime Minister's perspective, the best scenario. Is that still plausible, do you think, given the latest revelations and the mood? Yeah, I mean, that is clearly the line of defence. It reminds me of that, that, that quip that Jeremy Thorpe made when Harold Macmillan sacked half of his cabinet in so-called Night of the Long Lives. Greater love hath no man than this, that he lays down his friends for his life. You know, Boris Johnson is going to get rid of anybody he can get rid of to save himself. As you say, the COVID re- restrictions will go. We've got the levelling up white paper. There's going to be a, an effort at activity. And I think that's the point. He's going to just try and push this, but he's going to temporise in the hope that things will turn up. And it's the only strategy available to him. And it's not a terrible one. I think the problem is that factored on top of all of those things and all of the issues themselves, you've got the rising cost of living concerns that are moving to the forefront of politics. You've got the rising energy bills. You've got the fight from his MPs who are demanding, you know, tax cuts to help people with their energy bills move away from your net zero agenda. He is being weakened by all of this. And I think the problem is that even if his lines of defence work, and I agree with you, that's what he's going to do, and can get him past the immediate, there's nothing in the horizon that says things are going to improve. And it's the combination of those things that I think does for him in the end, which is that he's lost his credibility, he's lost his popularity, the public are angry with him, and things are going bad for them personally in terms of the economics of the country. So do I think he can push through to May? I think that is possible, yes. In fact, I think it's probably of the scenarios the more likely. But I don't see a way out of this for him in the end. And finally, George, this is the big question. Can Boris Johnson regain any of this lost authority? Because it's very rare for prime ministers when they're in office to actually improve their standing from the days that they were elected. And his reputation in the country, in the Tory party, amongst MPs, among activists, has taken a real battering over the past week. And even in that best case scenario, he does manage a fight back. It's going to be hard to regain. But then, of course, there is the worst case scenario from Boris Johnson's perspective, which is the report comes out. It is quite damning. MPs and the cabinet lose confidence and they essentially ought to say to him, look, you're finished, you have to go, it's too damaging. People will have made up their own minds about what's going on in number 10. And I think the message coming back over this weekend to Tory MPs in their constituencies, both from party members and from ordinary voters, will be damning. I was watching the BBC's Question Time on Thursday and just absolutely visceral anger about what Boris Johnson has been doing. And I'm just wondering now whether 
Boris Johnson will be able to make it through to May. He, he's going to try and lie low in Downing Street for the next few days, thanks to the fact that one of his family members has had COVID. He obviously thinks he can ride out the Sue Gray report. He then thinks that maybe a bit of ec- economic optimism followed by the move to a non-pandemic scenario will see him through. But as Robert said, ultimately, the bad news is lining up in front of him. And I think a lot of Tory MPs could move sooner rather than later. Well, I have the feeling we will probably still be discussing this come next week's podcast. But for this week, that's our wrap. George, Robert, Hanny, thank you so much for joining us. And that's it for this week's Payne's Politics. If you like the podcast, then we'd recommend subscribing. You know where to find us, all the usual channels you receive your podcasts. And if you subscribe, you'll get them when they're released every Saturday morning. And we also do like positive reviews and nice ratings. Payne's Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Dedder and Howie Shannon. The sound engineers are Breen Turner and Sean McGarity. Until next time, thank you for listening. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.